Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 29, The Many Adventures of Standish the Pilgrim. Remember that this podcast is listener-supported. If you'd like to help get word out about the show, one of the best ways to do that is leaving a review on iTunes. In addition to being easy and not costing you anything, it is a great help. It was the spring of 1625 in Plymouth Colony, when it was time for the annual election of the governor, that we next have something worth reporting. Oldham broke the conditions of his exile and returned, along with some friends, and he ranted in a mad fury. It wasn't a particularly threatening incident, more unsettling. You get the feeling that the pilgrims were rather embarrassed that they had to see this, I'm sure anyone who's witnessed such a tirade on public transport at 11pm can relate to this. I sure know I can. He was imprisoned while he calmed down, and then forced out of the colony once more. He had to march between two rows of musketeers, who each hit him with the butts of their guns as he passed, and placed him back on his boat. While all this was going on, people didn't notice that a ship had arrived, bringing with it... Winslow, and William Pierce, who had returned to Plymouth in the Jacob, after leaving on the charity last year. They were furious at all the problems Lyford and Oldham had caused for them back in London, where Lyford had such a good name. There had been a huge scandal where past acts of Lyford came to light, and it was decided to take no further action, but such ill-feeling had been caused that many of the London merchants just gave up the venture. Plymouth was too much hassle, and they could do without it. Oldham and Lyford will both have cause to reappear in our story further down the line. They were both invited to join a colony in Massachusetts, which died before 1625 was over, and then they would have very interesting lives. Lyford would become a pastor at Salem, yes, that's Salem, while Oldham will have a prominent role in the Massachusetts Bay Company, but we're not quite ready to cover that just yet. While things were falling apart in London, the merchants still invested in the colony sent over some goods to be sold on, but more importantly, cattle were sent, bringing the total herd up to nine. The Jacob then sailed on to Cape Anne with Standish, where the pilgrims had constructed the fishing stage the previous year, and they intended to use it. But when they found it, another group of Puritans had seized it. Fighting almost broke out, but peace was made, and the stage was expanded to make room for the Jacob. Standish is always getting into these little adventures. Speaking of which, in the summer of 1625, Standish set sail to London in order to deal with matters there. Most of the adventurers had pulled out of the agreement they had made for the colony, and he wanted to clarify what their legal position was, hoping to buy out the adventurers with help from the Council for New England. Standish ran into difficulties. Firstly, there was a change in government. James I had died, and was replaced by Charles I. The Pilgrims had always had a tricky relationship with James. They disliked his authoritarian style, They had partly fled to the Netherlands, and then to the New World, in order to escape him. 
Charles would be even worse. You have only to think of what Charles's relationship with the Puritans back in England would be, and then to remember that the Pilgrims were the extreme Puritans, to know why this would be the case. But I don't really want to get into that here. I've already said quite a bit about Charles's ascension when we dealt with Virginia. The other complication was plague. Now, let's get into some medical history, because this is really an interesting tangent. Plague is one of the more famous diseases to hit mankind, arguably the most famous, although malaria and smallpox also have to be up there. It is caused by a bacteria known as Yersinia pestis, which primarily affects wild rodents, and is spread by fleas, which is how the disease can pass to humans. A bubo, a swelling on the lymph node draining the flea bite site, is a primary characteristic of the disease. It's how it gets its name of bubonic. Flu-like symptoms develop between three and seven days, fever, chills, aches, and vomiting. A real problem is caused if the bacteria reaches the lungs, as this will give the victim pneumonia, allowing the disease to spread through infected droplets while coughing. This is pneumonic plague. Infection can also be spread through the bloodstream, septicemic plague. If it is untreated, the disease has a fatality rate of between 30 and 60%. So much for the disease. Now, onto outbreaks. There have been three major outbreaks of plague. These are categorised as the three plague pandemics. The first of these broke out in Egypt in the mid-6th century during the reign of the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, and it would haunt Europe until the 8th century, breaking out with frequent regularity. I would highly recommend listening to the History of Byzantium podcast by Robin Pearson for more information on this topic. His coverage of the plague is second to none. The second plague pandemic originated in China and spread into Europe along the Silk Road in the 14th century. The initial outbreak of the second plague pandemic is often referred to as the Black Death. It would kill 50 million people in Europe during the 14th century. This was not the end of the second plague pandemic though. It would haunt Europe until the 18th century. These outbreaks are less famous but still deadly. In the UK, the Great Plague of London is particularly famous, which lasted between 1664 and 1667, killing perhaps 100,000 people, but this was one of the smaller outbreaks. Half the population of Naples, some 150,000 people, died during a plague outbreak in the 1650s. The Great Plague of Seville saw the death of half a million people in southern Spain around 1650 as did the Great Northern War Plague outbreak in the early 1700s. There was also a third pandemic, which began in the 1890s in China. This outbreak was largely contained to the east, but ravaged India and China, killing perhaps 12 million people. Tangent over. There is your brief history of plague. Back to Standish in London. While he visited in 1625, there was an outbreak of the second pandemic. In this particular occurrence, 40,000 people died. What this meant was that those that could, i.e. the wealthy, fled the city, 
This meant that Standage was in London, but he couldn't sort out any business. The whole voyage was a bit of a waste, and he returned to Plymouth in April 1626. 1625 was rather a dull year for Plymouth, which I suspect the Pilgrims probably enjoyed. There was no starving, no conspiracy, just getting on with life. They had a good crop, and used the surplus to trade for furs. Winslow led the expedition, and was able to get hold of £700 worth of beaver and other skins. Standish's reception upon his return was mixed. The pilgrims were happy to see him, obviously, but not so happy at his news. The mission had been a failure, and he had to report back all the deaths. King James, Prince Maurice, who had led the Dutch government during their time in Leiden, Robert Cushman, their agent back in London who had been the colony's right hand, always fighting for their interests. These were all tragic, but the hardest to accept was that of Pastor John Robinson. Without the interference of London trying to force fishing upon them, the Pilgrims spent 1626 farming, and they were able to sell their corn at six shillings a bushel. There was an issue with other English colonies devaluing the crop, therefore the Pilgrims decided it would be more profitable for them to trade further afield. They only had a house carpenter, but he had worked with the shipmaker before he died, so he was employed to expand one of their ships by inserting about six feet of waste after chopping the ship in half. It was a success, giving them better trading options. They were beginning to become more and more established in the New England trade network. That mostly covers events in Plymouth. The other thing to happen that year was that another voyage was made to England, this time by Allerton. It was hoped that things would be more settled than they had been the previous year. The government should be more stable, and the bout of plague had run its course. Allerton returned in 1627 with some more goods, but the real piece of interest here was that he had made a contract with the adventurers to buy them out of the colony, which received the hearty approval of those back in Plymouth. They would buy the colony for £1,800, which would be paid in instalments of £200 every September 29th, which may seem an odd date to the layman, but it was chosen as Michaelmas or the day of St. Michael the Archangel. I'm sure the pilgrims were somewhat relieved that they were now the owners of the colony, but there was a bit of an issue. The shaky legal position of the colony was once again coming back to haunt them. Plymouth was uncharted, and it had a government based solely on the consent of the governed, rather than a contract giving it authority from a sovereign force. It was what made the Mayflower Compact so important, authority coming from the consent of the governed was such a novel idea, but it didn't half make things complicated for them. The issue was that because of these factors, Plymouth didn't legally exist. It wasn't a legal entity. This meant that it wasn't possible for the colony to buy itself, the only way out of the mess was if someone bought the colony for them. This would be a legal technicality, the funds would come from the colony itself, they would just have to have someone to legally represent it, 
This wasn't an issue if they suffered no problems and they were able to pay off the £1,800. The real issue here was over securities. If the colony ran into disaster and was unable to pay off the debt, what would be taken as collateral? Well, the individuals who represented the colony would likely be thrown into prison as debtors. They would be ruined. But being a leader is not all about power and glory. There are real responsibilities attached, such as these, and eight men were willing to put their names forward to shoulder this particular burden. William Bradford, Miles Standish, Isaac Allerton, Edward Winslow, William Brewster, John Holland, John Alden, and Thomas Prince. From this point, legally, these eight men owned the colony, and they were free to do with it whatsoever they wanted. They were no longer bound by the whims of the London merchants. Now that they had the final say, the first thing they did was hold a meeting to discuss whether or not they wanted to introduce a restriction on who was allowed to live there. While the core of the colony was made up of Puritan separatists, the London merchants had given them a lot of other figures to live there as well. Not all of them respected their church, and not all respected their civil government. A proposal was made to remove them from the colony. This was then rejected. This can be spun both ways. The Puritan separatists who were so closed-minded that their first independent action was to propose to remove anyone who did not share their beliefs from the colony, or that they were so tolerant that this measure was repressed. I think that both of these spins are counterproductive, and only shed light on the prejudices of the author. The proper thing to do is note that both things took place, the measure was proposed, and it was rejected. The fact that both of these things happened tells us more about the pilgrims and their view of the world than any moralised viewpoint which only distorts the account. You need to take events in history together. You can't just abstract single incidents to make points. It doesn't work like that. With this proposal rejected, they could begin organising the colony on new lines. It was decided that Plymouth would be an equal partnership. The heads of all the families and the self-supporting single men would each receive one share in the public holding as purchasers, and would have the right to take additional shares, one each for a wife or child. There were about 156 purchasers, 57 men, 29 women, 34 boys and 36 girls. There were also a number of servants who did not receive shares, numbering between 20 and 30. It was decided not to alter their farming methods or their trade, each person would pay their share of the debt towards buying the colony, which was not covered by trade. The cows, goats and pigs were divided evenly between people. Land was divided 20 acres per share, in addition to what they already had. This is the simple version of the agreement. Should you want to know the exact system for determining lots where land plots were, and other such specifics, the information is out there but I don't think we need to trouble ourselves with it. This, in the middle of 1627, is where we'll close things for this week. 
Next time out, we'll follow the consequences of the 1627 division. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find more information about all this online. Your first port of call should be thehistoryofpodcast.com, our website. You can find a load of extra things there, and you can sign up for membership should you be so inclined. You can also keep up to date with what's going on on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and on Twitter at History Jamie. Also, feel free to send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The history of podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.